Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on and Lewis Hamilton has gone from record sharer to record setter with his 92nd Formula 1 victory in the Portuguese Grand Prix. And what a win it was after a chaotic first few laps and with a big winning margin after overtaking teammate Valtteri Bottas to get the lead back. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to review a remarkable race are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Mark, go to you first. What did you make of F1's visit to the the Algarve circuit? It's a rather nice venue, isn't it? Great venue, yeah, lovely venue. Um, it, it turned out to be a, a really fascinating uh, event, actually, um, because of, ironically, because of the pandemic, if you think about it. We, we're at a, a circuit we were, we're never going to be at at a, a time of year where the, the weather's a lot cooler than, um, the, you know, the tyres the, the we're ever expecting to see, and um, the, the track surface was late, re, late notice resurfaced, and that played a massive part in the pattern of the weekend. So all the all the good things about this weekend, about this event, were as a re- result of the um, the shaking up of the variables from the, um, the the pandemic. So not everything's bad. <laughs> there we go. There's a there's a positive story. But because I'm the one who's actually here this weekend, I've had to put up with the weird traffic routing that was going on, which meant it took three times as long to get back to my hotel from the the circuit. But uh, I'll let them off that, particularly seeing as they've put this race together at short notice. Scott Mitchell, as ever, watching on from Stockholm. How, did, how was your view from there? Was your telescope able to uh, able to give you a good view or did you have to rely on the television? Come on, leave it out, leave it out, Ed. Let's not go down that road again. All right, I've made a fool of myself enough times. Um, no, my view from uh, from Stockholm was uh, was as good as, as, good as always. Um, lots of different... Uh, Camera, camera angles, lots of onboards, um, lots, lots to look out for. I got lost very much in the in the opening two laps. I, it was just very difficult to keep track of everywhere you um, you had to have your eyes darting all over the place. But it was brilliant. I um, 
I was really, really looking forward to this event. Not necessarily the race because I didn't have high expectations for Algarve as a spectacle, but I was super excited because I'd spoken to um, the likes of George Russell, Phoenix Rosenfist, Jolyon Palmer, people who have raced at Algarve before. And I was just super excited to see what F1 cars would look like at this track. To me, this was like Mugello on steroids in terms of excitement just because of the the undulation and the nature of the circuits. I was super excited and I, I, I really think that the Grand Prix lived up to my expectations. Yeah, I was very pleased that there's been a Grand Prix here. I first went here for F1 testing 11 years ago. It hailed at one stage, but otherwise it was it was just great to watch cars going around here and thought that the time had passed, the opportunity had gone for there to be a Grand Prix here. But actually, while we're on the subject of your telescope, I think I can comment on what's in the background in your uh, in your living room while you're talking, because Max Verstappen did the same in a, in a press conference. Yeah, that was massively unexpected on, on Thursday. Obviously, we know that Max is an avid sim racer. So at some point over the last, what, four months or so, three or four months, he's he clocked that the majority of the times I appeared on the the Zoom calls for media sessions, my uh, my play seat challenge was uh, parked in the background. Um, but a couple of my sim racing seasons have recently ended, uh, and uh, I've basically lost the battle to keep it out in the living room <laughs> for no reason for 10 days. Uh, so I had to put it into storage. Uh, so when we did the the FIA pressers on the on Thursday, uh, it was no longer visible in the, in my background, which I didn't think anyone would notice. But Max clocked it and asked me where it had gone and why I'd stopped, <laughs> which I thought was simultaneously brilliantly attentive and also an indicator of how bored he is during those media sessions. <laughs> yeah, evidently thought uh, you'd retired. I can't see much in the background uh, in Mark's room. Is that a guitar case in the background? Or that's a guitar case. Yeah, there's a guitar to the side and. Um yeah a bed you're in a, you're in a guitar pincer movement by the sounds of it some kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of surreal <laughs> nightmare <laughs> these visual prompts work really well on a podcast the listeners yeah, are going to be exactly. absolutely just delighted yeah. i'm just disappointed that no one's asking me about the uh the jovial wallpaper and the air conditioning unit you can see you the look background like you're in sort of like a you look like you're in a stereotypical uh depiction of a, like an american sweet shop from the 60s or the 50s I don't really know how to respond to that. Uh, yeah, I, I see where you may have got that impression from. It's uh, it's a nice little, uh, they call it a studio apartment. It's basically a bedroom with a little kitchen attached. So, uh, yeah, very exciting. Well, it's Sunday night. We're doing a podcast and Ed is quite literally a kid in the candy store. So. There we go. There we go. In that case, I'll have some uh, eating to do probably. But so anyway, let's get on with it. So, Mark, if we dive straight into the race, Lewis Hamilton did hold the lead at the start. So there was that brief moment of business as usual. Proved to be a madcap first few laps, three different leaders. We knew it was going to be tricky to get the tyres working, particularly for those on mediums, but it created even more drama than anyone expected. Yeah, and it was the the, the mix of mediums and softs um, that, that, that created that because the softs, all the tyres were difficult to get up to temperature, but the softs, at least it was possible to do it. Um, not everyone did, but quite a few of them did. The mediums, you just couldn't. The mediums wouldn't come up to temperature on, on just one formation lap. They needed about four laps. So you suddenly had this situation where the, 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 the quick guys at the front, the two Mercs and Verstappen on the mediums, were, were about, you know, among the slowest cars on, on, the, on the circuit um, for a... For a few a few corners anyway, and so you had this madcap um, thing where the, the the soft guys came storming through. Carlos Sainz led, and then um, of course, as quick as the soft tires had warmed up, they then grained, 
and just as they were graining, the mediums were coming up to temperature, so then all the medium guys came flying back past again, and that's great, just just this great, um, you know, exciting first lap. I saw Kimi Raikkonen up to sixth place on his softs from 16th. Did did some fantastic moves. He was, um, it was, it's like going back a few years and seeing the, the Kimi of old. Um, but it was all it's all a bit of a mirage, really. It was just just the the, the massive um, grip grip offset between the two tire compounds and the, the very different ways that they uh, they came in and behaved in these unusually cold um, and damp conditions. Yeah, it was a funny first few laps, wasn't it? Because we saw Bottas was was looking quite feisty initially. He battled his way past Max Verstappen, then he passed Hamilton. And you thought, oh, we don't normally see this Bottas on the first lap. And then uh, Carlos Sainz went past him. So it kind of uh, spoiled the uh, the illusion there for Valtteri as well, didn't it? Yeah, a little, yeah. Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, it, it, it had the effect of, of making some guys look way better than other guys. And it... it, it it's easy to put that down to different differing skill levels, but actually, it, it's it's inevitably driven by um, hugely variable grip of, of of tires that are at wildly different temperatures, and the, the puzzle then becomes not about how quickly you can drive, but about how you unlock the code of that puzzle and how you work out how to get the heat into the tires and keep it there. And ultimately, that's what won Lewis the race over Valtteri. Have you both seen the um, the the onboard footage of Kimmy's first lap or the first lap mm. and a half? I just yeah, I, I had I had so much fun putting a piece together uh, on 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 the website uh, for that, and had some sort of some input from Alex Albon and Daniel Ricciardo as well. And I think like, Max Verstappen talked about it in the press conference. It was just it was really interesting because what you were saying there, Mark, about how it's um there's such a big offset in, in, in performance. And, you know, Albon, who went backwards during that stint, he said, like, um, it was like Kimi was on a different track to everybody else. And Kimi said mm. that he was halfway around the lap thinking, what are the others doing? Because he was thinking, <laughs> this is completely normal. I'm not doing anything special. All I'm doing is just driving. But it was so funny because when he gets, it's re- if, if, if anyone listening hasn't uh, seen it, um, you can find it probably anywhere on on twitter with an easy search if you go onto the race website we've got a piece on there and there's an f1 tweet embedded within that article so you'll be able to see the video and it's just brilliant because once he sort of steadies it in like eight seventh or eighth place and he's going into the final third of the lap he um he comes across the lead group and they're just yeah. like tripping over <laughs> each other it's just it's one of the most remarkable opening laps i've seen in 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 ages it's fantastic because at each corner the quality of the opposition was was visibly gone up. He's like he starts off battling with Williamses and and then he's he's you know he's he's sort of next couple of corners he's he's there with a racing point and then you know before too long he's up with Max Verstappen and trying to get past and it's just the the quality of the opposition is increasing at every corner. It's amazing. But the resistance <laughs> is going down at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite fun because this is one of those circuits where you can actually see the track from the media centre. Obviously, we're very restricted on where we can go. But I could look out the window for the run to turn five, the, the sort of downhill hairpin that then you go up out of it, which is where science passed Bottas. And on that first lap, you, all you could just see was people locking up because they hadn't got the tyres going. It was, uh, yeah, you could see how tough the the conditions were. But it, it's great when you get a little bit of a shake-up at the start because it, it does shuffle the pack because some people got the tyres working quicker than others. So instantly you create better racing because you've you've moved the order around a little bit, which is which is what's important, I think, the the... the 
early stages of races often just everyone settles down into order and then you don't see much happening. Scott, let's get on to the, the kind of substance of the race. It took Hamilton until the 20th lap to get the lead from Bottas, but he went on to win by just over 25 seconds, which is an almost unheard of margin in, in F1 today. And of course, he had to pass Sainz before he could get to Bottas. So uh, how did he do it? How do you explain this difference? Because Bottas in the press conference did say he was just quicker than me today. I think if I had a... F- clear answer to that I'd probably be making an absolute fortune selling it to all of the teams so they could work out what it is that that Lewis is doing um it's difficult to sort of it's difficult to put it down to to, to anything I think he had I think we, we saw earlier in the weekend that Bottas had got to grips with this track really well his status as the the Friday world champion FP1 world champion the green track world champion whatever you had decide to to call that particular fictional contest on any given week. Um, it really helps. He's, he's been really good. Uh, we saw it at Mugello, Nürburgring, and now here, that he gets into this groove quite quickly. Um, and Lewis was sort of always playing catch-up, and then he did the usual trick of pulling it out of the bag when it counted in qualifying. But because he, I guess, sort of started from a lower base or was just learning the secrets of the circuit as it went, he he was still learning as the race went on. And he said like with each lap, he was discovering a little bit more. So I think he was just sort of, it was so comfortable. And because we had the, we had a conservative tire choice from Pirelli here. So the tires were a lot harder. And if you didn't suffer from graining or you were able to push through the graining phase, I think the tires basically could just be pushed and pushed and pushed. I think we saw like plus 50 lap stints from Ocon and Raikkonen, for example, during the Grand Prix. So I think, Hamilton just kept learning and he was just able to push and he felt really comfortable in the car. He didn't have any alarm bells. He didn't have any need to to back off. So he could just go and go and go. And this is what happens when a driver of this caliber is able to to push this much. It's really, really rare. And actually, it's a good opportunity for me to plug um, Mark's excellent piece about the, uh, about the record holders after Lewis's 90-second win because I think Mark makes a really good point in that article, which you can read on the race's website, that those kinds of wins just aren't, they're not compatible with this era, are they? With safety cars and the Pirelli tyres, you don't really see a driver crack on and build that margin. And Lewis did, and I think it was quite a fitting way for him to to break Schumacher's win record. Yeah, I'd say it was his best victory of the year. I think the thing I'd probably add to it about the reason for that difference is, yes, Valtteri's really good at picking up the grip, etc. But where we do see a difference is he's not so good when the tyres are a little bit more problematic. Lewis excels and has just a, a step ahead of him on on that. And also, we know Valtteri's not great when he's in the turbulent air. Similar situation in the race, not with turbulent air from following, but from the, the kind of blustery wind. There was always a tailwind or a headwind or a crosswind. Lewis Hamilton's very, very good at adapting to that and understanding how to make the most of it. So I think that's probably why... Hamilton was able to have that just extra level of pace because he was more in tune with the varying demands of the, of the different corners. Do you think that's a fair interpretation, Mark? Yeah, he's better at improvising, and Valtteri is fantastic at um, nailing a little sweet spot of perfection and of setup and technique. And as long as everything stays the same and standard, he's very, very difficult to beat. Um, but as soon as you have to improvise. Um, that's where Lewis steps up. And a couple of years ago, um, there was a, the, the French Grand Prix, Paul Ricard, I forget which year, but it was one of those weekends where Valtteri was quicker all the way through. And then into the last session, the wind changed direction. And 
it was quite a blustery win, and all of a sudden, Valtteri's well-honed technique over a particular curb and over a particular sequence of corners no longer worked, and Lewis had picked up, you know, the, what the implications of this wind change were. He just felt it, and he just went with it, and he was suddenly on pole by, you know, he just completely switched it around. He, he's on a comfortable pole, and it's that sort of improvisation that he's better at. So it took him a while to work out um, the, the the code to this particular puzzle because it was a really really complex one. Um, once he did, he just stepped it up again. He was in a different league. Yeah, and it's it's a great circuit for those demands because it's so undulating. There's blind corners. You're always pointing up or down. There's cambers. He said in the press conference after the race that he was experimenting with different lines through the weekend, etc. Just all these little subtle details that uh, that Hamilton's a master of, and yeah, so he can adapt to the wind, etc. Different people having. Uh, more trouble with that some were finding it a little bit easier to to adapt but just yeah hugely uh, effective now one thing we were missing in this race was a red bull challenge which we were kind of expecting from verstappen he had the softs at the start so we're thinking maybe he could get into the lead start plus he was relatively close uh, by 2020 standards at least in qualifying obviously just he'd been at the nurburgring but yeah, he was nowhere really in the end, wasn't he? He was 34 seconds behind uh, behind Hamilton and there was never really a point where you thought, yeah, Verstappen's going to be in this race. So what, what did you make of that, Mark? Was it just Red Bull not getting the most out of the out of the potential or was it just never really on to, to, to challenge Mercedes? I think they're on the wrong tyre strategy. I think if they'd started on the mediums like um, Mercedes, there would have been a much closer threat. And I know Max said afterwards... He didn't think it changed much, and he's right in the sense that I don't think it would have changed the result. He would have still have been third, but I think he would have been able to give them a much harder time in the first stint and would have made them work for it a bit more and therefore would have been closer at the end. And I think, yeah, when they switched to the hards, when he, he, the the Red Bull didn't like the hards um, as, as much as it, uh, the medium, so he would have faded away, and which is what he said. He said, well, if, if I'd start on the medium, I would have just been able to follow them in the first stint and it would have fallen away at the end so the the end result would have been the same and yes the result would have been the same but I think it would have been a more interesting closer contest yeah it's just one of those things we keep hoping for they're clearly making progress but still not quite there anyway and that means they need to be exactly on the money with with everything else with the tire choice etc etc to have any hope of of getting a victory but yeah one of those uh one of those days for Max Verstappen he's had a lot of driving around in uh, in third place doing a good job but there wasn't any more he could do. Now, we did see quite a bit of uh, intrigue down the order in the midfield battle. Charles Leclerc is a really interesting one. Fourth place in the race, fourth place in qualifying. And Mark, you wrote a piece for the race website that ran on on Saturday after qualifying about why Leclerc was the star of the uh, of the qualifying session. You could also argue he was the star of the race as well. And that's in a race where a number of drivers, including Hamilton, were very, very impressive. Yeah, he's, I mean, he had a great, he had a great race, um, but it was, it was all upon the foundation of that lap yesterday. It was just a very special lap, um, flattered the car, um, but also Ferrari got the tire strategy right. They, you know, they they qualified him on the mediums in Q two, and you could see that he was he's actually able at the switch over time. There was a period there for a few laps where you thought, oh, I wonder if Verstappen might be in reach here. He could he may be able to. Um, 
jump Verstappen. That was purely it wasn't because the Ferrari was as quick as the Red Bull. It's it's still it's still not, but it was purely because they've got the tire strategy right. And that combined with Leclerc, I mean, he's just doing a faultless job at the moment, just punching way above the car's weight. Just yeah, just giving them the result that they got, which was uh, the absolute maximum that could have been achieved. Yeah, he's having a, a brilliant season, De Klerk. A few errors aside, it's been uh, it's been quite uh, quite wonderful. I'm sure we'll get onto Vettel uh, in a bit. But Scott Ferrari, you wrote a piece. We're doing a lot of plugs here. This is this is very good stuff. Plugs for the race website, and don't forget the hyphens. So I do head there, but not until you finish listening to the podcast. You wrote a piece ahead of the weekend about how Ferrari felt they'd they'd bottomed out and they were kind of on the recovery now. New little bits and pieces they were trying on the car. They also had a 2021 floor experiment. They were running on. Vettel's car during Friday practice. So do you see there's some signs of recovery for Ferrari and reasons to be vaguely optimistic? Yeah, definitely. Um, they've been on a steady uh, improvement curve now for a, a few races. Each time they bolt upgrades onto the car, um, it seems they seem to work. Not, it's not, you know, they're not going to m- achieve miracles and suddenly yeah, start fighting the Red Bull on, on merit, but everything's adding up and certainly I remember sort of middle midway through last season I remember I think it was France in particular they bought a big upgrade to Paul Ricard and were a bit baffled because it didn't quite work which triggered a lot of um, we don't have a correlation problem but it's not working on track as well as it looks on the data uh, which was a a, a weird paradox they don't seem to have that at the moment which is really encouraging and um, I think apart from the uh, apart from the anomalous Sochi qualifying um They've actually been getting quicker and quicker, and the good thing about here is that that race pace w- was there. It wasn't just star on Saturday and then sort of salvage what points you can from a good grid position on on Sunday. This was a best of the rest win on on merit. Leclerc was the last car on the lead lap, which is uh, which is ultra impressive. And actually, um, not trying to uh, not trying to say a bad thing isn't a bad thing, but I'm actually sort of quite impressed with Vettel's 10th place as well. Not in the context of, I think, Seb drove a great race, but I think the fact that he was where he was relative to the Renaults and Perez and Sainz in front of him is that's actually probably Seb's most competitive run in the midfield for, for many, many races now. I know he sort of strategized his way into a really good result in Spain, but that wasn't really sort of, he wasn't sixth or seventh on merit there. He actually had the pace today. If he'd been, he, he, I think he could have got ahead of the, the the Renaults, but he properly shadowed them. Whereas when he scored that point at Mugello, do you remember he was just stuck behind the stuck behind the Haas? I think it was Grosjean and uh, I think it was Grosjean and um, Raikkonen. He was behind for ages, and he was obviously behind the Williams of George Russell for ages at Mugello. And here we are, three three races later, and Vettel's actually sort of genuinely with those good midfield teams. So when you raise that lower bar up. Leclerc's been performing heroics all year, hasn't he? So I guess people could look at that and say, oh, it's just another good Leclerc weekend. But I think the team and the car is is genuinely step-by-step improving. And when it comes to Vettel, he said Leclerc's in a, a different league when it comes to dealing with the limitations of this car. We know it's not that strong at the rear. That's a bad characteristic for, for Vettel. You could see from watching the, the onboard laps, the qualifying laps, of which there are many often, often people were doing several laps, two or three laps with cooldowns in between them. So lots of uh, lots of laps to have a look at. And you can see Leclerc's just attacking as he does on those those laps, whereas Vettel's just a bit constrained with that slight hesitation in corner entry. He doesn't always get the nose in as he wants it. So it's, he's just not, it's not flowing for, for Vettel. And 
Mark, I suppose it's not a surprise this is this is happening, and given the limitations of the Ferrari, perhaps we we can we can see why it's it's not just the fact that it's the end of Vettel at Ferrari that he's not performing well. It's uh, it's the perfect storm, if you like, for things just not to go well for him. If you had to design a car, if you had to configure a car that would show Vettel in its worst light, uh, you'd do one with a an unstable rear end, and uh, that's that's what he's got with this one. And um, Leclerc's just much, much better able to drive around that and even exploit it, which was one of the reasons I was so um, enthusiastic about that qualifying lap. There were, there were times when he's actually using that um, that trait to, to um, help the car's <laughs> other weak spot, which is uh, at, at low speed, um, helping get the car turned in. Um, so, yeah, that as Vettel explained it uh, tonight in the... And the, the the Ferrari conference, he's just said it, it's he's clearly feeling the the grip of the car um, in a different way, and is able to go faster. And it, it just it puts him into a different range of feeling in the car. And Vettel can't even get to that threshold where you, where you're feeling the car in that way. It's just it's not how he's physiologically wired up, I guess. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. How they would really compare if you if you gave them you know a, a more neutral car perhaps, um, but certainly this this has shown Vettel in his uh, least least competitive possible light. Yeah, but all credit to him for being quite happy to to shoulder the the responsibility for it and just say yeah, Charles just driving really well. Even though there've been some problems with him and the way he was uh, he was dropped by Ferrari for for next year and there was some aggro earlier in the year. He's uh, he's not showing it around sort of most of the people he's working with and the people who are working on the cars, et cetera. And he's, he's said he's determined to finish the season on a high. I'm not quite sure where he's going to get a result from, but it'd be nice if he could have just one just strong weekend to to see out the season. Now, another area where we saw plenty of change was in the battle behind Leclerc. Once the race had settled down, Leclerc's path to fourth place was quite straightforward. Fifth place was a very, very different kettle of fish. It ended up going to Pierre Gasly, just ahead of Carlos Sainz. Sergio Perez lost a few places late on. Should we start with Gasly in general? This is just another very fine performance for him. His car burnt down on Friday, basically, and he had to have a, a basically new one built up around the, the spare chassis. Got into Q3, as he usually does, and just had a really strong race. Really made that soft stint. He went a long way on the softs, and the, the tyres kind of came back to him a bit as well, and so he was able to... His his sort of basement pace on the softs was higher than a lot of those around him, and he went. He, he found more pace as he went on. Just a really classy drive from from Pierre Gasly, wasn't it, Mark? Yeah, lovely. He's he's doing it pretty much every time he gets in the car now, isn't he? We've we've seen these sort of performances from him right from the start. But initially, um, I mean, outside his Red Bull um, period, even at you know Toro Rosso. It wasn't every time he got in the car. It was, but it was regularly enough that you thought if he can ever connect those peaks, he's going to be a seriously impressive driver. And and that's exactly what he's doing now. He's he's connecting the peaks, and you just know that he's going to turn in a really really classic performance. You know, coming into any given weekend. Um, and yeah, he did it again. He got the softs to to go a long way. So probably the in hindsight the wrong tire to start on, but he minimised the damage of that. Got it a, a long way, and then yeah, as, as he um, as he switched to the mediums, he was uh, 
on on the attack and uh, did that lovely late late move on um, uh, Perez after having been almost forced forced into the back of it the previous lap um, he just did it again got on with it and uh, yeah it was uh, it's a lovely drive and Scott we can't talk about Gasly without the driver who his career in the past 18 months or so has been entwined with and that's Alex Alban 12th place he finished very difficult afternoon Christian Horner the team principal made it very clear there's now very much a clock running against Alban not just a stopwatch but basically he's now got one more weekend after this one to try and justify that that spot so it's not looking great for Alban is it no it's not um I think he's probably got the Imola race really to do something special and, and save his drive but I'm not really convinced that even Imola is going to be enough to be honest Red Bull's indicated that it does want to make the decision in the next few weeks and Helmut Marco said before that that means a decision before Turkey and Imola is the only race between now and then so he's he is almost out of time and the I think Red Bull will be really really disappointed that they um that they gave him this target was effectively an ultimatum because it's you know if you do if you don't do this then you'll lose your drive that's the that's what what Red Bull has said really means and his response to that was to allow a Ferrari and a racing point to out qualify him on Saturday and then irrespective of the difficulties that everybody had on Sunday in the opening lap or two with a lack of grip you know he made life needlessly difficult for himself with that First lap, the start, he'd lost two or three places by the time he was into turn one and turn two. And lost more places as the lap went on. He was just hemorrhaging time and wheel spinning in third and fourth gear. And it obviously had a lack of grip, but he was just... There's a different. There's a reason that Albon lost that many places and ended up... Was it, he, almost, he almost ended the second lap behind George Russell's Williams. In, and so he would have been 13th, I think. There's a reason that he fell that that far back while Verstappen was still inside the top four and eventually reclaimed third place and was even you know Harry in the Mercedes at, at different times. It's just Albon was given a an in, an instruction to respond and he capitulated. He had his second worst result of the season in terms of finishes and he's now scored one point in three races since that first podium at Mugello he's had a non-score and non uh, he's had a, I think it was a tenth a non-score and a non-score um which is just you know it's not good enough is it he's um i don't want to say it because i do think there's a driver in there and i think he's shown proper flashes of that potential this year but sooner or later that just becomes potential unfulfilled and i at this rate believe he will not be a Red Bull racing driver next season. Yeah, it certainly seems to be going that way. And the interesting question is why they don't want Gasly. And in fact, uh, I did ask Christian Horner about this because he said earlier in the weekend that there's no alternative driver in the Red Bull stable currently. If Albon doesn't justify his place, and justify was the word he used, then they'd look outside the scheme and that the drivers there are Nico Hülkenberg and Sergio Perez as the, as the candidates but Mark, what do you make of this this argument that they're not interested in Gasly? Christian Horner said that, well, well, the stuff about he's doing a great job at AlphaTauri, I think, is redundant because if he was the best choice in their eyes to go in alongside Max Verstappen and solve that problem, they would plug him in, no question. I don't think AlphaTauri's uh, situation would would come into it a great deal. But Christian Horner also said, well, 
Albon did a better job when he replaced Gasly last year. So if we reverse that, what's to say it wouldn't be the reverse again, that Gasly would then be performing worse. And he said, well, Albon will probably be doing the same thing in a in an Alpha Tauri, etc. But do you think they're right to rule out Gasly? And clearly, as they've done that, it's about more than just performance, isn't it? It sounds like it, yes. Um, I guess there's there's an element of one's bitten twice shy and they they, they don't want to look too ridiculous and having promoted the guy, demoted the guy, and then re-promoted the guy and done it the opposite, the, the mirror of that with, with Albon. Um, there's an element of that, I guess, and how, how it looks. But, yeah, they, they just seem to judge that there's something in that relationship that um, they don't think is going to work in the, in the senior team. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess my, my, my hunch would be It'll be Hulkenberg rather than Perez. I, I think um, there's more of an affinity between um, Marco um, and Hulk than um, with with Perez. Not not that they don't get on or anything. I think it's probably just a more of a, a cultural thing. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I mean, Christ, when he, when Christian was talking about it, he said, "Look, looking outside the." The junior ranks and taking on an, a, an established, experienced driver, and he used the example of like we did with Mark Webber, and I thought that was quite an interesting parallel, actually, because it would be quite a quite a similar stature sort of of, of driver um, getting his getting his chance, wouldn't it? Um, highly rated, but still with not the results on the board, um, giving his a, a, a big opportunity. So yeah, I think. Um, I think that's probably what we're going to see. You know, in theory, Alex had these two two races to sort of reprieve himself. But I think now that we've had this race, I, I think anything less than winning at Imola from pole isn't going to do it. Even you know, if um, even if he's within two or three tenths of max and finishes, you know. 10 seconds down the road and one place behind like the sort of performance that they want from him even if he did that in one race I don't think that would be enough now yeah I'm inclined to agree I think it needs something quite special uh, Imola and um, the problem is that it obviously that's incredibly unlikely but I I think even the bare minimum that Mark's described there you know the expectation of Albon to be a couple of free temps slower than Max and finishing a comfortable fourth I don't even see him doing that because he just doesn't, it's just not, it's never coming together, is it? And if it's not coming together at conventional weekends where he has time to build up, why would that come together at a weekend where there's going to be minimal track time? Yeah, it's a shame for Alex Albon. He's a good guy. I like the way last year when he came into Formula One, he had kind of that no fear approach, some really good drives, some good attacking drives, but it's, yeah, it's the time's been given and it's just not coming, which is why I think this is the final throw of the dice from Red Bull. It's put the maximum pressure on, say, right, you do it over the next few weekends or it's going to change. I think you've got to just have that final go and put the pressure on, see if uh, if the, the the kind of the come of the hour thing comes in and Alden says, right, okay, and, and suddenly he's just able to get into that mindset and do it. But uh, yeah, a, a shame. And it, it could be, well, it would be disastrous for his uh, for his F1 career, but... If you don't deliver, you're going to be under pressure. Let's talk about Carlos Sainz in sixth place. That run in the lead was fun for him. Obviously, it was never going to last. 
a much happier Carlos Sainz this weekend. He was struggling at the Nürburgring. He had quite a lot of new bits on the car that he was running there. I think he described the race as 60 laps of struggle or something at uh, Nürburgring, even though he finished fifth. He had the same spec that Norris was running at the Nürburgring. They both had had that, so they sort of rolled back a little bit, not because they don't think it's going to work, but because they want to understand the the upgrades, the, the, the parts that complete the package, as they've said, that was started by that new nose that they're that they're both running but again it just it just shows that science is another dependable driver isn't it mark he's he's signed for a team that should be at the front eventually in ferrari and it's just a, another reminder that carlos science leading a grand prix is going to be a site that we probably will see in a more serious way in the future yeah to- total quality driver has been for a long time um always comes to the fore in these sort of conditions as well. These are sort of changeable, variable conditions, very, very good at adapting, um, very bright. Um, and yeah, his, his race, the shape of his race was really determined by the the tyre choice and, and the, the traits of that car, which is, um, it's, it's pretty quick to switch its tyres on. Um, but it, uh, it, if, if, if there's a circuit that uh, tends to induce front graining, um, the McLaren will be among the first to find it, and uh, that, that was the case here. So, yeah, he, he within those um, constraints, he did a super professional job. Really impressed with the McLaren through turn one in general. It's really quick that car. The tricky corner that one, the uh, the kind of downhill approach, quite quick. So uh, yeah, that car is 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 good when it's uh, when it well in in all territory. It's 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 pretty good. Um, obviously, it's quite messy in this part of the field. Sergio Perez is the logical one to talk about next because he finished seventh. Not bad, considering he's right at the back after the first lap. But let, let's wind back to the the first lap, Scott. The contact with Max Verstappen that, that spun Perez. Stewards took no uh, no action. They said, in fact, no investigation was necessary. Do you uh, agree with that? Who was to who was to blame or not to blame in that particular incident? Well, it was the wrong decision, wasn't it? Because um, according to Otmar Zaff now, um, um, Max went off track, came back on track and swerved into Sergio. So it was, uh, it was all Max's fault, wasn't it? <laughs> that certainly seemed to be the, uh, the argument uh, from, uh, from Otmar. But Otmar, it, it was, Otmar's having it, to say was, many things at the moment. Yeah, it was, an un- it was very unfortunate. And, and Sergio was absolutely the, the ended up coming off as the victim and it was such a shame that it happened that way. But how many times have we sat here now on a Sunday evening and said, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're going to try and chuck it around the outside of someone, you have to be prepared for that car to, to, to wash out. That's it's physics. That, that is what happens. And I don't think Max did anything wrong. He'd, um, he'd, he'd been overtaken by Bottas into turn three and Bottas had run him out wide, but it's not like turn three immediately suddenly swings left and Verstappen had bounced off track and then bounced across into um in into Perez. He he got back on track. They they rounded the left hander at turn four. Perez tried to sweep around the outside. Max was on full lock. His car's fully loaded up. There's very little he's going to do, even if he comes off the throttle or brakes, I don't really think the trajectory of his car is going to change that much at that point. We know how crazy little grip there was at this at this part of the part of the race on the opening lap or two so he just washed out and there was contact it was an unfortunate first lap racing incident no malice i don't think intended on verstappen's part like i say he's full lock trying to avoid it and i think the 
I think the stewards are absolutely spot on to not even investigate it. They 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 didn't look at it and clear Verstappen. They flat out said no investigation necessary. Yeah, I think seeing it as a as a racing incident, one of those things that happens. I've I've got no particular problem with that one. You are you happy with that, Mark? Yep, spot on. Excellent. A good concise summary. Well. Perez, that that seventh place, that recovery was an important one because it kept Racing Point in third place in the Constructors' Championship. Very, very tight battle with McLaren and with Renault. We should take a diversion to the other side of the uh, the Racing Point garage. Lance Stroll, who had a, a pretty horrible weekend overall, ended up retiring from uh, from last place. Two five-second penalties he had in the race, one for causing a collision with Lando Norris, one for repeatedly exceeding track limits. And this was all after the whole bafflement about his uh, COVID-19 uh, diagnosis that he had between uh, the Nürburgring and, and here. So, Scott, can you uh, can you explain the uh, the craziness of the, the Lance Stroll weekend? Well, he did his he played his part, didn't he, in Racing Point's bid for third in the Constructors' Championship because he wiped out one of the McLarens that was on course for a for a load of points. So, I think job done from a team point of view. There, if you're not going to score points, stop the other stop the opposition from from doing it. He. Uh, it was a really messy weekend um, from all of the, as you say, the confusion and murkiness around his uh, eventual positive COVID test at the Nürburgring or around the Nürburgring weekend because he was actually well away from the from the Eiffel region and back home in Switzerland when he actually finally tested a tested for coronavirus and tested positive. There was all sorts of controversy around this, um, and then he was sort of blaming that absence from the Nürburgring for his tuggy qualifying performance where I think was he 12th on the grid like in a car that was was fifth fastest so that was a there's a big failure on Lance's part the team said that he had a big snap of oversteer because of some a, a gust of wind I'm not sure I entirely buy that but it's very possible we saw it how badly it was changing during the race itself and then yeah in the Grand Prix it was just it was just a clumsy race the the move on the move on Norris was never was never it was on, but it was never under control. He got quite larily out of shape on the curb when he darted left, tried to pass Norris around the outside, but the attempted move was basically as soon as he got his nose in front, he just angled it for the apex. You know, where's Norris gonna go? That McLaren can't disappear unless the um MCL thirty five's got a few magic tricks up its sleeve. I don't think Nor- Norris can do anything there. So it was actually, I know obviously it ruined Norris's race because Norris had to pit with damage and, and so did Lance, but the, so, so it was a, probably the fact that it had such a bad impact, impact on Norris that led to Stroll getting a five-second time penalty for that. But I was really pleased to see the stewards finally clamp down on someone or crack down on someone who was on the outside in one of those incidents and, and finally recognise that that's the trigger point because I get quite worked up and annoyed the amount of times I see that happen and it's always a portion blame to the driver on the inside and that is not how it works. So that was quite good to see. It was just, but it was just clumsy, wasn't it? All round for, it was a bad, bad race for Racing Point. Perez had that um, reprimand, didn't he, for swerving in front of Gasly in the closing stages and the steward said it was, it was just about okay fundamentally or, you know, technically as the rules are written, but it was too close to the limit. So they felt that it merited a reprimand. I don't think either either racing point driver covered themselves in glory today. The sad thing for Stroll was that actually 
he was putting together an okay race up to that point and and he was on a trajectory that could have got him a genuinely decent result so that made it even more unnecessary i, I did ask got mar safnauer if there was a, a kind of covid19 hangover shall we say obviously he's clear of it he's tested negative before the start of the weekend but i did wonder if maybe he was just a little bit below par they didn't have any evidence to say that it was everything he was doing with his training and everything was normal but you know maybe the most generous interpretation is to say perhaps it wasn't necessarily just the fact that he was out the car for one weekend that he was taking time to get going again perhaps it was just a, a there's a slight hangover made it a bit harder for him but even so, that doesn't really excuse the uh, the collision with Norris. That was just uh, very, very uh, poor judgment. Uh, and Perez, uh, obviously the seventh place, he's tied with Esteban Ocon in terms of the way their races worked out. Ocon was eighth. He had this marathon stint on the on the mediums. Effectively, Perez was sort of on the same strategy. He made that that early stop after the Verstappen collision, and then obviously worked his way back up the order. But uh, uh, Ocon went further. I think he went eight laps uh, further. We were hoping he might be able to attack on the on the softs after he made his stop, and uh, was shuffled back behind uh, Gasly uh, and Science plus Perez, who'd already stopped but had been ahead of him, uh, but then wasn't really able to go anyway. Just said he couldn't get the softs uh, working. But overall, for Ocon, a decent weekend. He beat Ricardo on merit. That's the first time he's beaten Ricardo in a race properly, shall we say? He finished ahead of him in the second Silverstone race, but that was only after Ricardo had his spin. So. Good progress from uh, Ocon, hasn't it, Mark? And he's his qualifying gaps are, are getting closer. So it's it is starting to come for Ocon. He said the communication with the team's much better as well. So after a slow start, we're starting to see hints of the Ocon we know's in there. Yep, he can build on that. I mean, he, he beat he beat his teammate today because um, the medium was a, a better tire to start on, and that was that wasn't a, an option open to Daniel because he'd made Q three and. Esteban hadn't, but even so, um, he, he made maximum use of that um, opportunity and he made the right calls and he did that beautiful 54-lap first stint, which was, um, yeah, it was terrific. Um, when he came back, you know, with just like 12 laps to go on a set of softs, the fact that he didn't really make any progress from there was just a reflection of um, the, the soft just didn't, wasn't working today. It was just wasn't the right tyre. And so, yeah, um, it, it, pr- probably about as much um, as much as he could have done from from there. So, yeah, he's definitely making progress. Yeah, and solid points all for Renault on a weekend that was their weakest for for some time to have eighth for Ocon and ninth for Ricardo. Of course, Sebastian Vettel in tenth. We talked about Kimi Räikkönen. We've touched on in eleventh place. I feel a bit sorry for Räikkönen that he didn't end up with a uh, with a point from this one. Obviously, it was a race of only one retirement, which was Lance Stroll, and he only retired just to save a bit of engine mileage in in the end but Raikkonen we've talked about that first lap but also he just drove a decent race in that uh, in that Alfa Romeo uh, so that was one of those ones that probably merited uh, merited something more for it you were you were looking at Kimmy's race in detail Scott other than the first lap uh, that, that after a couple of iffy weekends again for Raikkonen this is back to that form we saw him on for the run of races from kind of Spain through to uh, through the the five or so races that followed yeah, it was just a just a very efficient drive from from Kimi. He he had good pace. Ricardo was really impressed with um, the the performance that that Alpha had. He said it it wasn't easy to get get past Kimi, and then had to defend a bit. Kimi put up a, a bit of a fight there. He battled with Vettel as well. So it was it was really impressive. I think that Alpha is actually. I don't think that Alpha is a bad car. It's not 
it's I think it's now quite comfortably the I think it's the leading class C car. I think it's got a couple attempts at least on the Haas. And it looks like if it's slightly slower than the Williams in one lap form, well, it's slower than a George Russell driven Williams in, in one lap form. Um, that Alpha's actually quite handy on a Sunday. And in Kimmy's hands, it's just fair play to Kimmy. 41 years old. He turned 41, I think, was it a week or two ago? Um, and, you know, he was impressing everyone from Ricardo to Albon to Verstappen and Hamilton. So, yeah, really good. Deserved a, deserved a point, I think. Yeah, yeah, just 11th place was just one of those ones that you don't get a, a reward. But, uh, yeah, good to see him back on form. So, Albon, we talked about in 12th place, and Lando Norris ended up 13th. He carried some damage after that. So, it was a bit of a, a nothing race in the end for him. George Russell in 14th place. Interesting driver this weekend. Seventh time he was in Q2. He described this as his, as his best all-round through the weekend performance in Formula 1. And it was a strong drive to, to 14th. There wasn't a great deal more he, he could have done. Performing very well. But Scott, obviously we've got this question mark over his future. This was a bit of a saga through the weekend, wasn't it? Starting with, uh, with what George Russell himself said about it on Thursday. And then uh, perhaps you can pick up what acting team principal... Simon Roberts had to say on the Friday when he did an excellent job at uh, not fueling speculation. Apparently, I, I, uh, yeah, I felt bad actually on the on the Friday. I know it's our job. It wasn't like you're not trying to lay a trap for them, but it's that com- it's that kind of situation where you're like, well, you know, here you go. Here's a here's a legitimate opportunity for you to give us an emphatic answer. I'm going to make the question nice and simple for you, and they don't. You know, George said that maybe Simon's comments were taken out of context. Maybe, maybe what was slightly incorrect from the interpretation of what he said is that one of the drives might be vulnerable but maybe it's not just George's so it it has been the speculation that we know that the Perez camp has um has touched base with Williams and sort of sounded them out the the word inside Williams is that they haven't gone to Perez so they haven't looked to change their driver but they are open to it or they're open to at least considering it George says he's got nothing to worry about. Contracts in place next year. He hasn't been told anything that makes him concerned. Gets to Friday. And yeah, Simon Roberts, he's got the opportunity. He's basically asked to comment on the driver situation and says that they won't comment because they don't want to fuel the speculation. This went, there's a couple of answers on that. So I just said, you you can't, you don't want to fuel the speculation, but doesn't it make sense to extinguish it by confirming that the drivers will race next year and that you're not going to replace one of them with Perez. His answer was more or less, yeah, we could do that, but we're not going to. <laughs> it was, which I'm, as you said, I'm, uh, I'm going to try, uh, we don't want to fuel this spec, the fuel the fire of speculation. So here we go. Let's go douse a bunch of petrol on it instead as if it's, as if that's something different. So that's triggered all sorts. The clear interpretation from that is that they, they won't, they won't confirm the, the two current drivers because they can't, because there is a possibility that Perez might replace one of them. Logic or common sense would dictate it's Russell because he doesn't bring multiple, multiple millions in back in like Latifi does. But the other side of that is that Perez does bring some back in and Williams does want to become a competitive force again. So actually, if you get Perez plus 8 million once Perez's salary is taken into consideration... How much can you buy out Latifi for? Maybe he's the one that goes, but it's not that clear cut. Toto Wolff and Mercedes are adamant that Russell's situation 
isn't bad. It, it actually, it doesn't look bad at all. They're not even considering a plan B for him, apparently. Um, and now Russell's come out and said that he thinks that this has all just been planted by the Perez camp because they want to push Red Bull into a, a decision. If that's the case, I would expect a, a man of Julian Jacoby's experience to know that trying to force Red Bull's hand with the prospect of Perez signing for Williams is a bluff that Red Bull are probably more than happy to call. <laughs> so uh, I don't. I, I can absolutely imagine it being part of the fun and games. So I don't see it um, turning into. Uh, you know, I don't see that being what forces Red Bull's hand. Let's put it that way. So I'd be interested to see how it goes because Latifi will have obviously a very good claim for one of the seats, but Russell and Mercedes seem quite happy with the claim that George has to his. So maybe nothing will change after all this and it will all have just been a bit of a uh, bit of fun for nothing. Yeah, it seems like there's a serious possibility there and the team would be right to look at Perez given he's a high quality driver who can bring money and they can get him for a long-term deal as well, which they can't currently on George Russell. Whether that changes, uh, I, I don't know. If it was a question of long-term George Russell versus long-term Perez, a little bit different than this one because currently, obviously, Russell is resoundingly a, a Mercedes driver. But yeah, interesting to see how that one how that one pans out. And yeah, anything is possible in the driver market, isn't it? That's just the the way things go. But what this weekend reminded everyone is how much they'd lose. I see quite a lot of people not quite getting how good Russell has been. I see some. I saw some uh, amusing. We had some comments on some of our stories saying, "Oh well, Russell, uh, he's behind Latifi in the championship this year." Well, here's a fact for you: Fernando Alonso at Minardi finished behind Tarso Marquez, who's his teammate for most of the season. Does that mean Tarso Marquez <laughs> is better and Fernando Alonso is rubbish? Of course it doesn't. It's uh, that's just a, a capricious fact of if you're at the back and you get countbacks and that kind of thing. This happened. I saw someone say that, you know, maybe George Russell, George Russell should think about scoring a point in Formula One before he has, you know, ideas on getting a Mercedes seat. I was like, I'm not entirely sure that him not scoring a point in Formula One so far is, is really his doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's hauling that, uh, that Williams into Q2 seven times. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Latifi has done it once, but he's the best qualifier of that group at the back and there's some there's some quick drivers there and we should actually tick some of them off as well Giovinazzi was 15th place not much to say about him other than the fact he did have some contact with Sebastian Vettel on the the first lap but after a couple of decent runs he was behind uh Raikkonen again this weekend Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen 16th and 17th obviously both axed by Haas for next year we talked about that in our Thursday podcast episode that myself and Mark Hughes uh, talked in depth about them but Roman Grosjean did give away an interesting fact about that car that they've got problems with the rear suspension overheating some components there and it, uh, they, as they get hotter the ride height changes and it's leading to a lot of inconsistency it's one of these reasons why sometimes at the end of FP3 they're very happy with the car then of course the the suspension cools down and then it warms up again when you start to run it so 4.4% aero balance shift is the range that Roman Grosjean says it can can cause which is pretty huge there's a piece on the the race website that ran on sunday morning with gary anderson giving his analysis of that which is well worth taking a, a look at magnuson has the same problem but a, to a lesser extent so that's just adding to the problems that the Haas has got and grosjean was saying well we've we've got the, the slowest car in the uh in the Haas. there's not much they can uh they can do about it uh nicholas satifi finished 18th one of those weekends for him he Set a faster time in qualifying, got it deleted for exceeding track limits, and then you know did what he could do with an un- unpromising car, but did finish ahead of Daniel Kvyat, who had a, a one of those one of those races to uh, to to nineteenth place. Not uh, not a great one for him. He dropped to, to last 
on the first lap and never really uh, recovered. Uh, we've got to, in this podcast, finish off just by talking about the win record properly that Hamilton has got. I don't want us to go over ground that we did last week, when, uh, or the week before rather, when Hamilton equaled the Michael Schumacher record. But I think it is worth just having a moment just to think 92 World Championship Grand Prix victories, Mark. It's, uh, it, it is preposterous really, isn't it? W- what an achievement. Yeah, fantastic achievement. And um, as ever, um, for some bizarre reason, people are looking to some people are looking to, to belittle it um, because he's in the in the best car. But you know, um, of all, I think we talked about that, that feature before of the seven drivers that have held this record in the history of the championship. They've all been in the best car. They've, they've all been in either a, a very good or a an outstanding car throughout their careers and that's but there's a reason why they get into those cars it's because they're outstanding drivers and yeah he's just I mean, the the multifaceted level of his is his skill is is now you know really shoring up his his um, claim to be one of the the all-time greats because it's it's not just a very fast driver in the best car. It's 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 way more than that, and he's he's shown shown that in so many different ways just in this season alone. Um, and today was was one of those working out the puzzle of what was required with the tyres, and it was a puzzle that very few others um, succeeded in working out. And uh, that that's you know it's just he's the full he's the full package, and um, he's got. He's worked extremely hard for the last three or four years in eliminating any previous weaknesses in his game, and um, he, you know, he fully deserves everything he's got, and fully deserves full recognition. Absolutely, it's it's uh, it's rather joyless, I think, to kind of belittle it as <laughs> as you said. Like today, yeah, Lewis Hamilton wins Grand Prix is a bit of a boring story for people. I can understand why people don't like that aspect of it, but you can you can find it predictable and and repetitive but at the same time appreciates and understand and and celebrate it in in that way i'm not necessarily saying that this is what it should always be and it's it's great that it's that it's predictable but you can separate that the fact you might not enjoy it from the fact you can appreciate it i think that's important yeah i think races like today are, are the ones where people watching now especially people who don't give hamilton the credit he deserves <clears throat> They, they look at races like today and they don't see what's special about them. They see them as an example of Hamilton having no competition and being able to dominate and, uh, you know, it, it, it comes easy for him. But in 5, 10, 15 years' time, when people are looking back at how Hamilton achieved what he achieved, this, isn't, this will be just one of however many races he ends up on in terms of victories. But it will also be an example. It will be a footnote in a feature. It will be something that, someone at some point looks back on and says, you remember when Hamilton was able to just graft those those victories, those weekends where he was behind Bottas, but he managed to pull another pole out of the bag and he managed to win by this much or, or whatever. You know, th- These are all little puzzle pieces in what is going to eventually be an incredible, incredible picture, really rich in detail. And it's going to be beautiful to stand back and look at at some point. And I understand why people don't want to do it now, but wouldn't it just be so much more enjoyable if you could just appreciate what you're seeing while it's happening? Because it's history in the making and it's the sort of thing that I am 
in however many years time like I will look back on and be grateful that I've been able to see it because this is the kind of narrative that happens so very rarely so to actually be around for it I think is something not to be not to be sniffed at and actually while we're on the subject of people who are absolutely mega and achieving crazy things while we're recording this Scott Dixon's just won what I think is his what sick Vindy car title or something crazy like that so it's a good day if you're one of the greatest to ever take part in in your respective championship <laughs> I think this is 1730th IndyCar title he's he's quite some driver Scott Dixon but yeah what Lewis Hamilton is doing the the challenges of different eras vary there's been lots of talk about that over recent times but they do vary the way you have to win the things you have to factor in it's the same thing from a distance but when you look in detail the challenges are very different but what Hamilton's doing and putting it all together for the time it's the same thing Michael Schumacher did in his time Ayrton Senna did Alan Prost did Nicky Lauder Jackie Stewart Juan Manuel Fangio Jim Clark <laughs> I'm trying to avoid missing anyone out now but you know all, all of that <laughs> that kind of elite group of, of drivers in history the, the the absolute all-time greats have always mastered the challenge in front of them and, and Lewis Hamilton has done that the fact he's got more wins doesn't in itself mean that he's He's better than any of those. But what they all share is, is that amazing achievement. And there's there's only a few drivers who are in that conversation for the greatest of all time. You can never resolve it, but Hamilton is absolutely one of them and has a very, very strong case to be made. And who knows how many wins he's going to end up on. I'd be amazed if he doesn't pass the 100 mark. He's going to get seventh world championship and probably the eighth. So yeah, there's going to be lots more chance to appreciate what he's doing. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes for your insight. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen to read those many dozens of features that we've uh, we've plugged and plenty of others that we also haven't. If you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't already, do subscribe or even give us a review on your podcast supplier of choice uh, if you feel so inclined. Check out some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, the Gary Anderson F1 show, and also check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race. Loads of interesting videos to watch there. We'll be back next week with all of the insight from the Oh, I've forgotten what the race is called. Imola, San Marino Grand Prix. Let's call it the San Marino Grand Prix. <laughs> it's the region, isn't it? The uh, uh, Emilia Romana. Emilia Romana. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've done very well there. So I'm going to Emiliana call it... Romana. Something Romana. <laughs> well, it's very. <laughs> I'm getting. I'm Emilia. getting less confident as I say it. <laughs> Should we just call it the San Marino Grand Prix? It wasn't in San Marino. The Eiffel before... Rennen. <laughs> yeah, call it the Eiffel. <laughs> it wasn't the San Marino Grand Prix when it was called the San Marino Grand Prix because it wasn't in San Marino. It's no closer to San Marino, so you know, let, let's uh, let's just go with uh, with history on that. This is its third. This is third um, Grand Prix title. Of course, because it was originally the Italian Grand Prix. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Held, held on. So yeah. We'll, we'll get into the uh, the semantics of the of the race and I'll actually learn what it's properly called in time for next week's podcast, maybe. But yeah, join us next week for everything you need to know from Imola. <laughs>